Today marks a hundred days since Keir Starmer became the leader of the opposition. How has he managed the Labour Party so far? I think he probably wanted people to know that he means what he says and also he acts on it. He was utterly uncompromising on that one. As the UK was becoming one of the coronavirus capitals of the world, did he adopt the right strategy of what he calls constructive opposition, but some in his party would regard as weakness? His view is he needs to win the right to be heard and needs to re-establish Labour's authority before taking a baseball bat to government and saying that they're awful Tories. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, a hundred days of Starmer. My support for the police is very, very strong and evidenced in, in the actions I've, joint actions I've done with the police. There's a broader issue here. The Black Lives Matter movement, uh, or, or moment, if you like, internationally, is about reflecting something completely different. Take me back to a BBC Breakfast interview a couple of weeks ago with Keir Starmer. So Keir Starmer was asked about the Black Lives Matter movement. Gabriel Pogrand is politics and investigations reporter at the Sunday Times. He told BBC that he thought that the protests were a moment. He also characterised calls for the police to be defunded as nonsense. That's nonsense, um, and um, nobody should be um, saying anything about defunding the police. I mean, and I would have no truck with that. I was director of public prosecutions for five years. I worked with police forces across England. Starmer says that he used this phrase, a moment, in good faith. He was merely saying that the explosion of protests in America and Britain show that we are at a fork in the road as a society. Many on the Labour left thought that his comments were blasé and dismissive. There's a broader point here as well about how seriously the Keir Starmer leadership takes anti-racism. Is Labour taking anti-racism seriously? I think the actions of today... Morning, Keir. Hi, Sharon. I just wanted to put this to you. As a black Labour Party member, I was very, in fact, extremely disappointed. You refer to Black Lives Matter as merely a moment. Okay, sorry to jump in, but you were called a cop in an expensive suit by Black Lives Matter. That because sort of illustrates the difficult time Starmer is already having his Labour leader in needing to navigate both the left of the Labour Party, but then the country who many in Starmer's own operation think uh, want to hear something very different. It's interesting that there was this huge backlash caused by that, that people sort of piled in. It tells you a lot about the sort of febrile atmosphere he's up against. It just gives you a little glimpse of what must be happening behind the scenes. How did he respond? Keir Starmer subsequently said that he will put himself forward for unconscious bias training. Sharon, on the second point you raised, which is really important about unconscious bias training, in the Labour Party we are introducing that for all of our staff um, and I'm going to start, I'm going to leave from the top on this and do that training first. So Clearly he's trying to send a message to the left that he gets it and that he cares. I think the reaction initially illustrates the fact that there's not much trust in the relationship between the left and Starmer. It is the honour and the privilege of my life to be elected as leader of the Labour Party. 
it comes at a moment like none other in our lifetime. So it's been a hundred days. How do we think Keir Starmer has done as a leader? I mean, take me back to that moment when he got the leadership and he made that slightly odd victory speech against some white blinds at home. I mean, what sort of a vision was he setting out? Yeah, I mean, many people remember the decidedly uninspiring venue for his victory speech, which, as you say, I think was in his living room in in North London. Determinedly Um, bland. Determinedly bland. Whether you voted for me or not, I will represent you. I will listen to you and I will bring our party together. You know, the the watchword of his campaign and the defining message of that acceptance speech was unity, number one, and victory, number two. That can mean many things to many people. I mean, part of the kind of triumph of Starmerism so far has been its ability to accommodate people like Paul Mason, the left-wing journalist and activist. And then you have Peter Mandelson, Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair, all cheering him on. And people close to a couple of them have told me they are amazed by Starmer's ruthlessness and in awe of how he has vanquished various bits of the left in his short amount of time. I mean, what did people expect him to be like? He didn't put enough meat on the bone for people to necessarily know, but... He's identified with the soft left. He's not going to be a Tony Blair or a Jeremy Corbyn either. There are a lot of people who basically hoped that he would be Corbynism minus the personality of Corbyn. And I mean, it depends on who you ask now, but I think he's defied a lot of expectations. We don't quite know yet what he would do upon getting into government. And people close to Starmer say that they need to prove to the public that Starmer's worth listening to before telling them what exactly he's going to do and why exactly what he's saying is right. What did we know about him as a character before he became leader and before he even became a politician? He's quite rare in that he's been on the public stage for a while. He was DPP. What did we learn from his time doing that? I spoke to somebody who uh, was with him shortly after that job interview to be Director of Public Prosecutions, and he turned up to his interview with a huge ring binder of papers under his arm. He didn't notice that he'd had a big yellow patch of baby vomit on the lapel of his suit. This is like the only time that he hadn't fully done his homework. He'd gone to a job interview unwittingly covered in baby vomit. It, it, it was, all, I mean, it, it was also somebody's answer to my saying to them, you know, can you give me some colour? I mean, obviously, any profile lives and dies on the basis of how many mischievous or colourful anecdotes you can summon about the subject. And I wouldn't say I was overburdened with material in Starmer's case, (laughs) which might tell its own story. He, I think, according to a lot of people, is not necessarily the kind of guy who sets your heart beating faster when he speaks. If if I remember the phrase correctly, one of his defining missions of his tenure was something he called core quality standards. That sounds inspiring. (laughs) Indeed. I think you're not necessarily going to win over a country by talking about consistency and quality of standards. But then in a less dramatic way, he, he wins people over. And some people say that mirrors the way in which he argued as a lawyer, as an advocate. I mean, while he was a barrister, I spoke to one person who came up against him and lost and said that he spoke for hours and it was shockingly detailed and at times rather boring and 
you could almost be forgiven for forgetting that by the end of the day in court, Starmer had made legal history and everybody <laughs> kind of walks away as though nothing that remarkable had happened. But that is, that is kind of his style. We do hear the words forensic and you know, detailed a lot when people are talking about Keir Starmer. It's sort of part of his appeal as a leader, I suppose. Was that on display during his time as the director of public prosecutions? I mean, did you get a sense of a person who's always across their brief? Yes, I mean, uh, you, you talk about the word forensic. There are a, a lot of Corbynistas who have been triggered by the use of this word. I think in his first Prime Minister's questions, there were lots of political journalists who used that word to characterise him and everybody was getting very upset and saying all these journalists need to stop wetting themselves about the fact that he put some coherent questions forward to Boris. I'm welcoming in, in his first outing to this batch box, Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And can I thank you, the House authorities and the staff, for allowing us to meet in this way today. So he comes in on quite a sticky wicket. Not only does he have a very divided party, but he becomes leader right in the middle of a global pandemic. Now, he didn't really say very much about the pandemic before he became leader. You know, all through that phase in March, when we now know that there were vital weeks when things weren't moving fast enough when you know we weren't locking down was it a mistake for him not to be more visible not to be saying more about this i think there are those who will say he could have been more audible i think his view is that he needs to win the right to be heard and needs to re-establish labor's authority before taking a baseball bat to government and saying that they're awful tories we've heard a lot about this phrase of constructive opposition. Mr Speaker, I promised that we would give constructive opposition with the courage to support the government where that's the right thing to do. And we all want and need the government to succeed in defeating coronavirus. But we also have to have the courage to challenge where we think the government is getting it wrong. Essentially, Keir is loath to generically and instinctively say that everything the Tories do is rubbish because he thinks it looks performative and silly and he doesn't think it's the way that you rebuild trust at a time of crisis or indeed in the country full stop. I think his initial assessment was this is a situation without precedent. We need to look like we're a party of government and that means getting behind the government when they're doing stuff right and being robust and critical when they're doing stuff wrong. But by turning a blind eye to, you know, the Robert Jenrick affair or the Dominic Cummings affair, is he doing enough to hold the government to account, which is one of the things you'd expect the opposition to do? I mean, there's definitely pressure for Starmer to come out more strongly and set out in a more direct and detailed way quite what it is that he wants. When it comes to wealth taxation... I think the government does need to look at this area. I think we do need to have that new settlement. Your shadow chancellor has spoken of a potential wealth tax. Is that the solution to this financial crisis? Well, she said, look, it's got to be amongst the um, uh, the issues that we look at. Hmm. She's right about that. Um, you so know. you would support it? Well, we are saying to the government, look at the idea of a wealth tax. I mean, we are at the moment, by the way, seeing one of the first signs of tension between Keir Starmer and his shadow chancellor, Annalise Dodds, on this question of a wealth tax. But there are some forthcoming major tests of his resolve and politics, the wealth tax being a good example. And I think as time goes on, we'll start to get more of a sense of what Starmerism really means. That is interesting. 
How much has he been able to influence the government's policies on the pandemic, you know, the easing of lockdown, the economy and how you approach the, the potential problems that are coming there? How much can you feel his presence on the political stage when those decisions are being made? We were talking about this principle of the left having won the argument. I mean, Rishi Sunak at the moment is putting forward spending plans that would have made Corbyn blush. It is obviously a crisis. We don't know at what point that kind of investment stops. But at the moment, this is a highly unpredictable and unusual form of conservatism. I'm just looking at my phone. Matt Zarb cousin, who was a uh, spokesperson for Corbyn, tweeted to me yesterday, this is public, I'm not, not revealing anything improper, <laughs> that we had a chancellor who was more likely to use the word comrade than the leader of the Labour Party, which I think probably, probably says it all <laughs> in, in terms of the challenge that Keir is facing. When he first came in, you know, what was the mood behind the scenes? What are you hearing from people in Labour HQ as Corbyn hands over to Starmer? One of the biggest and probably boldest things that Keir's done, and it's probably too kind of inside the beltway to have troubled most people, is appoint as his general secretary, the person who runs Labour Party headquarters, Tony Blair's own former official, David Evans. So he has appointed a veteran Blairite as his chief enforcer. How did that go down? I mean, it didn't go down well, but then what can the left do about it? I mean, that is the question. Quite good to get off to a humble start, isn't it? It was good. It was good. Um, But, you know... And what's been been the worst thing? What's been the worst thing? Well, the worst thing, I think, is dealing with things like the leaked report. I think that was shocking. One of Starmer's biggest challenges so far in terms of his party management was there was this dossier which was prepared by Corbyn staffers, we think, and leaked moments before Corbyn stepped down as party leader. It was shocking. It was um, disappointing that it was leaked. Shocking when you read the contents of it. And what I don't want to do is for the Labour Party to get sucked back into talking to itself and about itself. It was ostensibly a piece of research done into the party's handling of anti-Semitism, But really what it was, and it was kind of a remarkable piece of work, was a moderate official who left under Corbyn had inadvertently uploaded thousands of internal messages and WhatsApps to his internal email. Corbynistas at Party HQ had mischievously somehow availed themselves of this material and found the most venal and vicious messages among senior anti-Corbyn staffers imaginable. They, I mean, I think even discussed tipping off journalists about the fact that Diane Abbott was in a toilet somewhere crying or evading the media. We saw some of the kind of nicknames they used to describe Corbyn's closest staffers. Carrie Murphy, Corbyn's chief of staff, was nicknamed Medusa. I mean, according to a lot of people on the left, these anti-Corbyn staffers held out a particular contempt for black MPs who were kind of identified with the left. And so essentially the first thing in Starmer's entry was dealing with this because the left were kind of baying for blood and saying that Starmer must not vanquish the left now, but actually purge the party's right after we've seen these black and white examples of insubordination. And so, you know, we've been talking a lot about how Keir's been aggressive towards the left. He has also quietly suspended a large number of veteran 
brownite moderate officials and I think that is important for Keir. He has to be seen to at least be reasonably fair and so you know he's probably made enemies on the extremes of both the left and right of the party pretty early on in his premiership. It's not just personnel he's been purging, it's also some of the problems that have clung to Labour under Jeremy Corgan, like anti-Semitism. I mean, how has he dealt with the anti-Semitism problem? Keir's kind of an interesting character in, in this respect. His wife is Jewish, but he never made a particularly big public song and dance about the issue. I actually spoke to a uh, somebody who is a journalist at the Jewish Chronicle, and I think sat next to Keir at an event a couple of years ago and learnt that his wife was a member of the Jewish community and said to him, how could you not be doing more? I mean, what are you doing being part of this project? And Keir's answer then and his answer since when challenged has always been that he did stuff behind the scenes under Corbyn and his first act as leader was to have a Zoom call with the Board of Deputies, which is the main representative body of the Jewish community in the UK. And then, what can one say? His first big test probably was this Long Bailey situation. Rebecca Long Bailey described the actor Maxine Peake as an absolute diamond when she shared the link to an interview with her earlier this morning. The article contained anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and I have therefore stood Rebecca Long Bailey down from the shadow cabinet. And tonight she has retracted those particular remarks. Well, some on the left that I've been talking to are fuming tonight. They think this wasn't actually an anti-Semitic article. And they think Keir Starmer was sort of sitting there waiting for a moment like this, waiting to pounce. I mean, many people have said that what Long Bailey did um, certainly wasn't the worst thing we've witnessed over recent years on the left. But, you know, I think he probably wanted people to know that he means what he says and also he acts on it. And he was utterly uncompromising on that one. As we mark his first 100 days and consider what we've learned so far about the new Labour leader, is there a way to define what he stands for? What is Starmerism? It's a wonderful question to which uh, we don't we don't have a clear answer. But if we had to say what Starmerism is at this stage, it is an attempt to transcend the factionalism that has blighted Labour historically by putting forward an economically radical, but perhaps socially more conservative form of Labour politics. It seeks to remove from Labour's policy platform, a lot of the stuff which was alienating or perceived to be alienating towards traditional white Labour voters, but also accepts the hour and the zeitgeist demands something big and ambitious and radical by way of economic change. Starmer's hope is that um, he can bring both cosmopolitan Britain and white working class not in the M25 Britain with him. At the moment, he's winning quite a lot of support just almost by default, people who are angry with the government's response to COVID or to the economy are flocking to him just as a sort of a safe pair of hands, an alternative. Is that enough to fight an election on? Or do you actually have to come up with a vision? Do you have to express what Starmerism is to win people over? Yeah, I don't think we know what the first 100 days of a Starmer government look like. I don't think we know what the top three things in his bucket list, if he gets into number 10, are. I think in the end, I mean, the 
world that Starmer is going to be competing for in four, five years' time is likely to look different to uh, the world we currently inhabit, not least with COVID and also with the kind of changing nature of the Conservative Party, which is something which is underplayed. I mean, the kind of complexion of the Tory backbenches has changed so much because of this kind of new intake of MPs from so-called red wall seats and we already are witnessing now a kind of more interventionist, pro-big state Tory parties. Yeah. How do you define Starmerism if the Tories are already doing all of those things? It's really interesting that the word ruthless keeps popping up because it's not the impression you'd get from him at first. Is that something we are sort of starting to get a glimpse of? I mean, that is basically the story of his first 100 days. And Can you continue basically triangulating and being everything to everybody? Or at some point, do you need to make... A choice. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. On Monday, when asked why care home deaths had been so high, the Prime Minister said, and I quote, too many care homes didn't really follow the procedures in the way that they could have. Is there also sort of a problem in that he's, in the last couple of weeks, for example, we've heard, you know, characters, big popular figures like Jeremy Clarkson, for example, coming out and saying for the first time they would consider voting Labour under Keir Starmer. And it's partly because he's got that sort of just forensic character, which is in such stark contrast to Boris Johnson's. You know, when you see them at PMQs, that they are two very different approaches. Perhaps he, perhaps he did know that it was being transmitted. I didn't hear it at the time. Perhaps Captain Hindsight would like to tell us whether he knew that it was being transmitted. Of course, it was necessary to change our procedures. I want to thank our care workers. Is there a danger for him that if come the next election, it's not actually Boris Johnson he's up against, but somebody, for example, like Rishi Sunak, what then? I mean, it's interesting because Keir is a great foil for Boris in many ways. It certainly would be difficult. Sunak is a smooth operator. People need to know that although hardship lies ahead, no one will be left without hope. That's tough. And Starmer can count his lucky stars, but people don't know that much about him yet. And he's got lots of time to persuade people that he's got what it takes. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Sunday Times politics and investigations reporter, Gabriel Pogrand. You can read more of Gabriel's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were James Shield and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you enjoyed this episode, do tune in to PNQ's Unpacked every Wednesday at 12 with Matt Shawley and the Sunday Times political editor Tim Shipman on Times Radio. See you tomorrow. <laughs>